Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G's Other Voices, a pre-recorded show airing on June 28, 2023. On this Other Voices show, we listen to others presenting their realities on a variety of subjects. Today we are starting off with There's No Emergency, with Nadia Swart interviewing dissident climatologist Dr. Judith Curry on climate change. This subject is critical to understand as the climate crisis is a major force of fear. Dr. Curry tells it like it is, without hype, providing a clear discussion from where it started and why there is no climate emergency. That is followed by recent clips from Tucker Carlson on subjects others would not touch, except for the interview on the extraterrestrial problem. All the clips are from his time on Fox News. It is 43 minutes of highlights demonstrating why Tucker is no longer with Fox, but still telling his truth on his Twitter channel. The third clip is only 18 minutes with actor Jim Caviezel, entitled Slams Woke Media for Hiding Truth, Calls for Sex Trafficking Whistleblowers. Not a fun topic, but necessary to be aware of. And then we finish with one of the cosmic reality family, Ani Avedisian, to weave wit with wisdom. Thank you for listening, hoping you find yourself sharing some of the information with another awakened person. I'm Nadja Swart for biznews.com and joining me today is Dr. Judith Curry, a climatologist who was the former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. What's your background and experience in climatology? Well, um, <clears throat> I've been in the field for a while. I got my PhD in 1982, and I was studying um, the weather and climate of the Arctic, actually. And um, that became very timely when one of the biggest concerns about global warming was the Arctic sea ice. And I gradually, um, my research over many decades now has, uh, four decades really, has um, spanned many topics in weather and climate. But over the last decade, I've focused primarily on climate dynamics, extreme weather events, um, predictability and prediction, and some philosophy of science issues really related to um, what we can learn from models, um, understanding uncertainty and ignorance and social psychology issues surrounding how we interpret all this. So my interests have sort of <laughs> expanded. And I also do a lot of, um, at this point, I'm no longer at Georgia Tech. I am president of climate forecast application sector. And I work a lot with people having to make real decisions um, everything from electricity utility providers to insurance companies to farmers in uh, 
Pakistan and India. <laughs> so a range of applications that I'm working on. Your name comes up with a couple of other scientists who doubt the scientific consensus on climate change. What is your view on climate change? Okay, first I'm going to talk about the sociology of, of why certain people have been separated out as heretics or even called deniers. Um, you know, the, the basic facts of the situation are pretty clear. The temperatures, global temperatures have been warming. Humans emit CO2 into the atmosphere. CO2 has an infrared emission spectra, which overall acts to warm the planet. But there's a lot of disagreement about the most consequential issues. How much of the warming has been human-caused? Um, <clears throat> how important is human-caused warming relative to solar variability, ocean circulation patterns, and so on? So, so there is some very legitimate disagreements you know, about this topic. And myself and others that are in this category that you're talking about, we don't dispute the basics. What we do, dis what we do object to is the idea of a manufactured consensus for political purposes. This is not a natural scientific consensus that has emerged over a long time. It's a manufactured consensus of scientists, you know, at the request of policymakers, which has been too narrowly framed. There's too much politics in it. And, you know, that that's what I object to. And there's a number of other scientists that object to this as well. And because, and we've also been critical of the behavior of some of the more politically active scientists who are exaggerating the truth and the interests <laughs> of, of a good story or political objectives or whatever. So, so that's what it's about. It's not about any fundamental scientific disagreement other than maybe levels of confidence, <laughs> you know, in, in certain findings. Well, I'd like to come back to the politics uh, in this whole scenario but for now it seems to have changed in terms of terminology it was global warming and then that shifted to climate change and recently it's now a climate emergency other than global warming be a, being a component of climate change what potential reasons are there for this shift in terminology well people are trying to figure out how they're going to get people's attention Okay, now it's not, now they use global heating. Heating sounds more dangerous than warming. Warming sounds sort of nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the attention, I mean, the attention is really shifted to these extreme weather events, you know, hurricanes and floods and heat waves and whatever. But there's very little evidence to tie. I mean, that's really part of natural weather and climate variability. You know, any signal from global warming usually can't be teased out. Um, in terms of these events and um, attempting to say, oh, this is global warming, you know, the floods in Pakistan and Hurricane Ian and whatever, you know, it's, it's possible that there's a minuscule component 
from the overall global warming, but it's very difficult to tease out from natural variability. These events would have happened anyways, <laughs> you know, you know, with possibly some minor change associated with the warming, but you can't really decipher that in an objective way. So, but the people are trying to, you know, there's a whole bunch of complicated motives here. Um, you know, people's worldview, their politics, um, career investments in a certain narrative, um, wanting to play various political games. Um, if you want to, if you're an academic scientist working in the climate area and you want to advance and get grant money and professional recognition, you would be well served to hew to the alarmist narrative. I mean, the people who are getting professional recognition and being put in charge of big institutes and centers are all alarmists. I mean, who, who speak about doom and gloom and exaggerate. How far is reality from this doom and gloom theory? It's, it's very far. It's very far from gloom and doom. Okay. So it's not upon us. No. Uh, you know, if you go back, okay, I'm in the middle. Okay. People are being sued left and right over bad weather. You know, governments, oil companies, and everything, because they're not doing uh, People who think that they can control the climate <laughs> by, you know, it, it, it's just a pipe dream. Uh, even if we went to net zero, we would barely notice. It would be hard to detect detect any change in the climate. The climate's going to do what the climate's going to do. And there's a lot of inertia in the system. If what, if the carbon dioxide that we put in is as important, as bad as some people seem to think, those effects are going to be with us for a very, very long time. And stopping now isn't going to, <laughs> you know, change that trajectory very much. So, you know, we just need to look forward and try to understand what's happened. But, thinking that we're going to control the climate by going to net zero very quickly is not good. But the gloom and doom, I mean, compared to pre-industrial is held up as some sort of, you know, golden age <laughs> that we're supposed to go back to. Well, pre-industrial, you know, the, the, the weather was horrible. This was at the end of the little ice age. You know, it's the coldest period of the millennium. I mean, there, there were horrible famines and extreme weather and extremely terribly cold winters and springs and things like that. This, that was not good weather. The weather now is much better. Even look more recently, at least in the U.S. where I've looked most carefully, the, the weather was much worse in the 1930s by any measure. You know, forest fires, droughts, heat waves, hurricanes, everything that you can imagine in the U.S. was much worse in the 1930s. Does anybody remember that? Well, no, most of those people are no longer living. But if you look at the data, there it sits. Most people have just look at the data since 1950 or 1970. The 1970s and 1980s, that was a relatively benign period of weather. And so if you just do the trend since 1970, oh, the weather is worse now. Well, yes, but it's not worse than the 1930s or 40s or even the 50s. So it's just, and 
people are able, to, people are much more prosperous globally. Poverty is way down. Life expectancy is up. You know, we're doing very well, you know, as we reduce poverty and human development advances. A lot of that has been, you know, fueled by petroleum and coal. Um, are there better fuels out there? Um, well, hopefully in the future there will be, you know, advanced nuclear and stuff like that, very promising advanced geothermal. But right now, this minute, I mean, having our entire energy infrastructure relying on wind turbines and solar energy is, is going to cause a lot of harm to a lot of people, um, not j just to the overall econ economy. You can't run an industrial economy on wind and solar, at least <laughs> the way it's currently um, envisioned. It requires a huge land footprint, which people, at least in the U.S., people are even the sort of environmental people are fighting against new transmission lines and wind turbines because of various perceived ecological impacts. You know, so, you know, you know that nobody wants a landscape covered with wind turbines and transmission lines. Um, you know, just people haven't thought this out. That, and there, there's no emergency. <laughs> I mean, economically, you know, even the economic scenarios were all expected to be worldwide, like four times better off economically by the end of the 21st century. And a little bit of that might be shaved off because of damages from global warming. But we're, we're all going to be better off, you know, moving forward through the 21st century unless we do really stupid stuff like just destroy our energy infrastructure before we have something better to replace it with. Okay, that's the biggest danger. The biggest climate risk right now is a so-called transition risk, the risk of rapidly getting rid of fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, I'm no fan of pollution and crazy price spikes and whatever. I'd love to see inexpensive, cleaner, reliable, secure energy, you know, better than what we have now. But going to 100% renewables is not is not a better solution. Um, it's it's yeah the the bit storage people talk about well hydrogen backup is right all of this is decades away. Um, the time between now and 2050 needs to be a period of technological development and experimentation, which different countries, different states trying different things, see what works. And from there, you know, some good solutions will emerge. But trying to mandate that everybody goes to wind and solar is going to be an unmitigated disaster. The, the supply chain for all of this doesn't exist right now. Um, you know, it's material, very material intensive. Um, we have established, you know, pipelines for fuels, for coal and and gas and, and oil and everything, although that's obviously been disrupted by the situation in Russia right now. But, you know, we can maneuver that, but we have that in place. We do not have the supply chain in place for all the materials that we need for wind and solar and batteries and whatever. So people have all these plans and they just can't get the materials right now. So, you know, we just need to accept that we're going to need decades you know, at least three to figure all this out. And certainly by the end of the 21st century, we we could have a really good 
power infrastructure in place with abundant, clean, inexpensive power. But not if we fritter away all our efforts right now on wind and solar that's going to actually damage our economies. So we're going to be less likely to be able to really make the transition in the way that we need to. Um, that will really support more people and the need for more electricity. Thinking that we're going to need less energy going forward is a pipe dream. I mean, we want more energy, electricity, especially if we're going to electric vehicles and heat pumps and, and all the fancy things that we want to do with artificial intelligence and machine learnings and robotics and whatever, all that needs electricity too. So we're going to need more electricity, not less. Mm-hmm. So, so we need to figure this out. And wind and solar, why it's an, a near-term partial solution and maybe a niche solution for, <clears throat> for some places, it's not a long-term global solution. So the continued use of fossil fuels as opposed to renewable energy is not going to, it's not signing the planet's death certificate. Um, Yeah, I mean, even if we're going to transition to all wind and solar, we're going to need a lot of fossil fuels to accomplish that, for to establish, to do all the mining and establish the supply chains and all the transport and everything else. So in the near term, even if the plan is to go to all renewable um, wind and solar, then you're going to need a lot of fossil fuels to get us there. (laughs) It's just, you know, people just repeat these mantras without any thought, you know, and they, you know, you know, I don't know. It's not a good place. There does appear to be a, rise in natural occurrences such as wildfires and floods. Are we only seeing this because mainstream media just sort of, they advertise this as part of the narrative or is this not worse than, as you said, what was going on in the 1930s? A couple of things. I mean, South Asia floods very frequently during the monsoon season, especially during La Nina years. I mean, there've been most, you know, and there's been floods in Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, huge ones, huge ones, even in the 21st century. So this is nothing exceptional. Um, the fact that we now have, you know, more global communications, internet, and also the hyping of every natural disaster and tying it to climate change just gives all this higher visibility. Um, it's just, it's great, more visible, just more visible. And, and there's nothing exceptional about much of anything that's been going on. It seems like a lot, but, you know, and, and it's a lot of it is the, the natural um, ocean oscillations, which really determines the seasonal weather. And, you know, we're in a bad spell since about, 2017. We've just been in a bad spell for five years. And once we see a shift in the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation and this, that, and the other, things will calm down for a while. It's just that we've been in a really bad you know, place for about five years. Yeah, these combinations of circulation patterns, you know, happen and bring with it bad weather. So, um, and we'll cycle out of this, you know on the time scale 
five to 10 years probably. And then maybe we'll see a calmer period with another more active period. And these things are regional. So, you know, there's a lot of natural weather and climate variability and trying to tie each little thing that happens to the slow creep of global warming. Um, it's, it's wrong scientifically and it's counterproductive in terms of actually dealing with this stuff. I mean, even if we go to net zero by 2050, we're still going to have floods in Pakistan's and Hurricane Ian's and stuff like that. We're still going to have it. So spending more time and money trying to figure out how to increase the resilience, especially in these developing countries, to bad hurricanes. And that, you know, the the, the biggest tragedy of all this is a lot of the, the, you know, the development funds from World Bank and all these kind of things has been refocused on wind and solar rather than on development and adaptation and reducing vulnerability. And so these countries are actually in a worse place <laughs> than if the climate change narrative hadn't been around. So this is actually interfering in with development. I mean, countries like the U.S. can, you know, survive these weather disasters. I mean, it costs money and a few people might even lose their lives, but we bounce right back and, you know, we try to make it better. But in, but in these developing countries, Pakistan, I, I mean, this stuff is relentlessly impoverishing. Every time one of these disasters hit, they, they just don't have the resilience to cope I mean, they all live on the edge. They wipe out their crop. You know, they, they borrowed money, you know, to buy their seeds and this, that, and the other, and then it wipes out and they go further into debt. It's just relentlessly impoverishing. And better forecast, better weather forecasting and climate forecasting, better operational procedures can go a long way towards helping in these countries. And that's what my little company's trying to do. Um, but infrastructure, better infrastructure, and that includes energy. And, and once you have an energy infrastructure you can develop. Now, Bangladesh is one of the bigger success stories here. I mean, you're too young to remember, like in the 70s, when Bangladesh was the world's biggest basket case. I remember it because George Harrison, the Beatle, you know, had all these concerts for Bangladesh. <laughs> okay. But that was the world's biggest basket case. Now Bangladesh is doing great. They, um, they developed their own natural gas and fossil fuel resources. We actually helped in a small way with the flood forecasting and helped them developing plans to evacuate and, and manage around the floods. But the, the life expectancy has advanced substantially. The birth rate has lowered to a saner level. And now they've got a real economy, okay? And they ignored a lot of the advice from places like World Bank. Oh, you need to wind and solar and this, that, and the other. So, so they sort of went their own way and they're doing really well, okay? And, you know, having the right politicians... <laughs> you know, in country. But the point is you have, these countries have to develop on their own. And sometimes you get a good leader and 
it tends to happen. And Bangladesh is a success story. Vietnam is up and coming. You know, there's some success stories out there and there's some other ones that, oh my gosh, you know, it just seems like a basket case. How do, how, how do we help? And, you know, disasters, weather and climate disasters just wipe those countries out. And so trying to figure out the development and the adaptation piece for these countries, this is where we could do the world the most good, not trying to get them, you know, allow Africa to develop its own fossil fuel resources so they can develop, you know, and give them a little bit of help. Right now, their resources are being exploited and sent to Europe, <laughs> okay, rather than being used in country because they don't have the power plants. It's a and it doesn't take that much to give them some power plants and help them develop an infrastructure, and then Africa could take off. But because of global warming and all that kind of stuff, the powers that be aren't lending or giving Africa the resources that they need to develop these resources. And that's, to me, that's the biggest crime on the planet right now. Um, it's a very different crime than the global warming activists <laughs> think about. But this this could help, you know, a huge fraction of the world's population develop and then become more environmentally conscious. And eventually they will transition to um, cleaner energy. But right now, anybody who thinks that burning dung, OK, in a cook stove, <laughs> well, it's renewable. Right. If they think that's clean energy, no, think again. It, it is shortening their lifespans because it makes air quality absolutely terrible. Having to use dung and wood is just terrible for the climate and it's terrible for their health. Oh, it's renewable. Wood and dung is renewable. <laughs> yeah, and it, it just leads us to do so many stupid things. Is CO2 solely responsible for the warming of planet Earth? No. <laughs> no. Um, You've got, okay, the sun throughout, <laughs> you know, millions, yeah. millions of years, you know, has mostly been dominated by the sun. Okay, and earth processes, volcanic eruptions and things that go on. Okay. Is the warming of the earth necessarily a bad thing? No, <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Um Warming is not necessary. I mean, this whole issue of dangerous is the weakest part of the whole argument. You know, what is dangerous? You know, it's a whole Goldilocks. I don't know if you're familiar with Goldilocks and the three bears, the fairy tale about, you know, too hot, too warm, just right. And, you know, everybody has a different idea of what's good. But, you know, in the U.S., people are migrating south. Florida, Texas, and California, these are southern states. This is where people are migrating in the U.S. They're going south, not north. They, like, they don't like cold winters, and that's the biggest, you know, dominant thing. So, I mean, nobody's moving north. People are still living on the coast. President Obama just bought a big estate on coastal Massachusetts, I mean, right on the coast. Uh, you know, these, these, this is what's regarded as desirable, um, the, the only harm from warming is sea level rise. Okay. And that's a slow creep unless something catastrophic happens, say to the Ana West Antarctic ice sheet. 
And if something catastrophic happens there, that's as likely to be associated with under ice volcanoes and whatever as it is to be with global warming. So, I mean, the only real danger is sea level rise. And people can manage sea level rise um, and people can move inland. But, you know, there's more water in a warmer climate. Again, South Asia is water-starved because, well, (laughs) you wouldn't think so with flooding in Pakistan. But um, overall, because the population is so high and for agriculture, they're draining down their groundwater and whatever. They need, they want more water and you get more water with global warming. Um, and, and, you know, you got half the world's population living in that whole region. So, you know, this whole idea that global warming is bad, you know, that's, and, and to make that argument, they rely on extreme weather events, which, you know, you can all, if you go back 100 or 200 years, you can always find something that was as bad or worse. Hmm. So, one of the primary takeaways for me when you look at environmental activists is their, what looks like a very solid conclusion that human beings are not compatible with the longevity of planet Earth. Is there any truth to this? No. (laughs) No, the Earth is going to be fine. I mean, the Earth has survived much worse than humans. You know, asteroid strikes and all sorts of indignities. Uh, You know, so the planet Earth is going to be fine. And, you know, species and life, you know, evolves, moves, changes. They said, oh, my gosh, you know, this species has moved a little bit further north. (laughs) So what? Um, you, You know, the Earth has survived far bigger insults than than what humans are doing. That said, <laughs> you know, we should not be, you know, careless, you know, about our home planet. We, we should do our best to keep it, you know, clean and to minimize our footprint, you know, where we can. But, you know, thinking that the earth is fragile, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's a worldview that, you know, doesn't really align very well with reality. Um, you know, think about it. Eight billion people is pretty remarkable, you know, that are managing on planet Earth. Um, yeah, I mean, developed countries have a lower environmental footprint than, you know, like say what's going on in the U.S. in terms of the environment is much better than what's going on in Africa, because, like I said, they have to burn wood and cut trees down and, you know, this, that, and the other just to survive, just to survive. And, you know, when it's a survival issue, you know, you're being much harder on the environment. And when you don't have an economy, the reproduction rate and the population growth is very, very high. Um, You know, once you, I mean... The, pop, the rate of growth of Bangladesh population, you know, was like population doubling in a tiny amount of time. And now it's regulated, you know, some, you know, that's very close to what I would say developed world standards. And that's what 
economic development does. You don't need to reproduce so much to uh, survive. So we, we've screwed up our priorities. <laughs> you know, you know what our priorities. Our priorities would be for the human race to thrive, and this thriving implies that we have to minimize our footprint on the planet to the extent that we can, but we, we don't sacrifice our thriving and, you know, go back and live in caves, you know, and, and hope that, you know, a lot of the population dies off so we don't have a big footprint on the planet. It doesn't make sense. Our number one goal should be human thriving and flourishing. And that does imply some care of our natural resources and preserving of our environment, but that's not the dominant goal, you know, just to let the environment, you leave the environment alone. I mean, that's just a non-starter with 8 billion people. What consequences have you faced or pushback as a result of your dissidence? Well, <clears throat> How shall I say? Okay, in the academic world, I faced a lot of consequences. I mean, I I clearly wasn't going to advance any further. My employers wanted me gone. I was essentially unhirable. Um, I was out of the loop for any professional recognition, um, you know. So academically, you know, they pretty much finished me off. But <clears throat> so I went to the private sector, <laughs> Okay, started my own company where I'm off, you know, doing fascinating work, important work. Um, I have a new book that's in press, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, should be out, you know, in nine months, sometime in 2023. The publication process is not quick, but that's, um, I think it will be an important and well-received book. Um I'm, I'm helping people, governments, companies, um, make decisions about climate change, you know, what they should be doing, and not just about the environmental aspects, but the political aspects and the economic aspects as well. So I'm working, and I'm working with even people at the level of farmers, not personally, but indirectly through an intermediary. So, you know, helping a range of people make better decisions and manage weather and climate risk. And that, that's what I'm trying to do. And like I said, the biggest risk right now is the so-called transition risk, trying to go to net zero too quickly using wind and solar. That's the biggest risk out there right now, as I think the Europeans might agree. <laughs> If the climate change, let's call it propaganda, is not based on sound scientific fact, why do you think it's being pushed for so seriously by governments around the world? What's behind this? Oh, it ties into a political agenda. Okay. Um, and you have to go back to the 1980s to understand where this comes from. You know, the UN Environmental Program, they, they want world government. They don't like... They don't like capitalism. You know, they, they want, they want, you know, they want power for themselves. They want world government. They want to, it's, it's a power issue and people, and they latched onto global warming as the issue that could help achieve these goals. And then it, you know, it developed a lot of momentum. 
in the late 80s and the 90s. And this was before there was even any signal of warming. I mean, we just come off, been cooling since the 1940s. <laughs> There's no warming, you know, and so, but they already had a treaty in place in 1992 before there was really any sign of warming. So, so this, you know, it's the, 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 pol the political and policy cart was way out in front of the scientific horse right from the beginning. And then the IPCC framed, they were instructed to frame the problem to look at dangerous human-caused climate change. Don't tell us about natural climate variability. Don't tell us about whether warm is good. We want to hear about dangerous human-caused climate change. You know, so it's just been politics, politics, politics right from the start. And then, you know, it's developed a lot of momentum and if it chimes in with certain people's politics or environmental worldview, okay. And then, and then you've got Greta Thunberg, who's been enormously influenced on children with books. And now the children are being raised on this, all this alarmism, and it's become a huge psychological problem for children. You know, they're suicidal. Okay. They don't, see that they have a life. Why should I bother to study when the world's going to end in 12 years and all sorts of nonsense that they're fed and they don't know how to filter and the adults in their lives are probably feeding it to some extent, but it's just become, you know, a big cult and, you know, common sense has just, you know, left the room. And, you know, the, 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 the thing with the kids is really bad because it's very hard to counter. And, and it's, it's a huge global problem, kids being depressed and suicidal and thinking they don't have a future. <laughs> so how, how, how are, you know, what does that mean for the next generation of people who need to get educated, <laughs> you know, and be engineers and whatever? Not good. All, all for a political agenda promoting, you know, to get rid, to get rid of fossil fuels. It, mm. it just makes no sense. Dr. Curry, thank you so much for your time. I'm not just what for business. Day. Well, thank you. Well, with that, I hope the next time somebody says something about the climate, you know, maybe the questions to ask them because I've discovered that the best way of explaining something is to get the person to ask questions. So think in terms of what you just heard and maybe what you can take away with it, you know? Can you have somebody tell you, you know, they start talking about climate change and go, uh, can you explain that to me? And when they can't or when they stumble, you can say, oh, I, I thought, I understood that it was blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, there's so much more to this topic than what's presented here. But at least you'll have some, I, I mean, she just kind of gives us a good overview of, you know, what really is happening. All right, so now we're going to turn our attention to Tucker Carlson. And like I said in the beginning... It starts off with an interview on extraterrestrial, and that is an interview. But the rest of them are clips from the Fox network with when Tucker was on it. Of course, now he's on Twitter. 
You can look him up under Tucker Carlson Twitter. Alrighty, and it, this is 43 minutes, but it's just boom, boom, boom. Give you the facts. Give you the facts, baby. Okay, here we go. Yesterday, for example, a former Air Force officer who worked for years in military intelligence came forward as a whistleblower to reveal that the U.S. government has physical evidence of crashed non-human made aircraft. And then in the space of the last month or two, we've been drowned with evidence. The Pentagon was required by the last defense authorization bill to like produce some of their files on UFOs. And it turns out they have known about this since the end of the Second World War, which ended in 1945. Been a huge increase during that war, during the war as well. Huge increase in UFO sightings, in UFO crashes, etc., etc. And it turns out the federal government has been tracking this for 80 years and lying about it. So why? Well, that's a great question. I can't answer it. Theories, but I don't know. But here's what I learned. Just to the first question is, is this real? Or am I just being a crazy person who's spending too much time on the internet? Well, this summer, we got a call. We didn't reach out. This person called us. Lexi, who's standing right there, who's a genius, one of our producers, gets this call from this guy who's a tenured Stanford Medical School professor. And he wants to come on the show. Now, this guy has a couple patents, and so he's rich. And he's got tenure at one of the most prestigious schools in the world. So, like, he's not a flake. He comes on and he's like, 11 years ago, the U.S. government reached out to me because I'm an expert on head injuries, on brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries as a physician. And they had all these court cases from families of U.S. servicemen, over 100, who'd been killed by UFOs. And the Department of Defense was refusing to give them death benefits or medical benefits. And I'm like, and he's like, so they're in the courts. And I was like, there are over 100 servicemen killed by UFOs? Like, What? He's like, yeah, and there are court cases about it. I'm like, why isn't this on the front page of the New York Times? I don't know. But he goes, I'm involved in it. I'm the, you know, I'm one of the researchers. I'm the expert witness in these cases. Holy shit, what does that mean? And he's like, for example, uh, UFOs appear to be attracted for whatever reason to nuclear energy. So at nuclear missile bases in the upper Midwest, for example, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered submarines are all getting buzzed by these objects, including underwater. And in a number of cases, these things have landed on military bases, including famously in Germany, in West Germany in the 70s. And servicemen have approached them. Like, what is this thing? There's this, like, giant glowing thing on the base. And they approach, and they get traumatic brain injury. Like, they are rendered... Yeah, yeah. They get brain damage. Or they're killed. And he studied their brains. And they have, this is all totally real. This is not, this is the Department of Defense, dude. And they've all had this damage from some kind of powerful energy that we cannot identify. So then this guy's like, wow, he's just a scientist. He never believed in UFOs. He's like, this is real. I cannot believe this is real. This is like crazy. She starts doing research on it. He's still at Stanford. The U.S. government has verified the real in the sense there are objects moving in the sky that we cannot identify. They're certain they do not belong to a foreign nation. They're not from Russia or from China. And third, we know that these objects are moving in ways that we cannot replicate, explain, or even understand. So everyone who studied this in the U.S. government will admit that privately. No one has really said that out loud, and that may change very soon. So for the first time in half a century, there will be a public hearing on UFOs. The House Intelligence Subcommittee will hear from two senior Pentagon officials tomorrow 
on what the Defense Department actually knows about these objects. The Pentagon and intel agencies are reportedly feuding tonight on how much the public should know. History has recorded the first big UFO sighting in the United States is 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico, very famously right outside Roswell. But actually, there was in some sense a bigger and more significant event sighting two years before, also in New Mexico, at exactly the moment the U.S. government was detonating the first atomic weapon shortly thereafter used in Japan. And witnesses on the ground saw some kind of object shaped like an avocado, they said, crash land. It was inspected by a lot of locals. There were beings inside, they said, and it was carted away by the U.S. government. Now, people don't want to be called crazy, so no one said too much about it for quite some years. But people within the U.S. government believe it's true, and they believe it so strongly that now, as of this week, the Defense Department's annual spending bill will require, as per Congress, the Pentagon to go back and investigate what really happened. The Pentagon has spent decades studying these otherworldly remains in order to build more technologically advanced weapons systems. Okay, that's what the former intel officer revealed, and it was clear he was telling the truth. In other words, UFOs are actually real, and apparently so is extraterrestrial life. Now we know. In a normal country, this news would qualify as a bombshell, the story of the millennium. But in our country, it doesn't. The whistleblower's account ran on a technology website called The Debrief, which you've probably never heard of. The Washington Post had that story, but decided not to run it. The New York Times, meanwhile, just pretended it never happened. On the front page of the New York Times website this morning, there were five stories about Ukraine, as well as four stories apiece about Donald Trump, trans people, and climate change, the usual lineup. There was nothing at all about how an alien species is flying hypersonic aircraft over our cities. That UFOs have been flying into restricted airspace off the coast of Virginia every day for years. We learned this Sunday night in 60 Minutes when a former Navy commander, David Fravor, said he witnessed a UFO flying over the Pacific Ocean in November of 2004. So this happens, he sees a UFO very clearly while flying a military jet in 2004, but the military doesn't save the tape of the incident or any of the data on the ship. Why wouldn't you? It's clearly a security risk, but you ignore it? How many other UFOs have been ignored by the US military? How many others have been hidden? By law, the Pentagon is required to tell the public what it knows about UFOs. We're hearing the report is coming out on or about June 25th. Yesterday, someone at the Pentagon gave an early read on the report to the New York Times. In that story, we learned the Pentagon cannot say that UFOs are from a different solar system, but they can't say they're not. They can't say they're from China or Russia, but they can't say they're not. Doesn't sound like they can say much of anything. Lou Elizondo is a longtime Pentagon official. For years, he oversaw investigations at the U.S. government into UFOs. He's left now. He and his organization, Skyford, have obtained a government document that proves the advanced Tic Tac UFO has been tracked by American military intel services for at least 70 years. And it turns out that actually, yes, these things have been shot down and crashed, and the U.S. government has the wreckage, and it's being held by defense contractors Raytheon, Lockheed, which are big independent companies, but that work for the U.S. government. They're really part of the Department of Defense, but they're separate. So you can't, their sunshine laws don't apply to them. You can't actually get information from them. It's a very tricky way to hide information. And they have the wreckage from these crafts. Hmm. 
And I'm like, really? Are we positive these aren't like advanced Russian or Chinese? No. But the idea that we're not alone in the universe and we're getting buzzed by these objects whose behavior defies physics, like that just explodes too many categories in my head. I just can't deal with it. And I think that's part of it. But I'll tell you this, the most interesting from my perspective, I don't know if it's a consensus, but a lot of people, serious people, not crazy people who study this stuff, U.S. government employees, seem to believe that these objects are coming from under the oceans. So the conventional view is they're coming in from outer space. There's not actually a lot of, you know, something enters the atmosphere, we can see it on satellite, and there's not any evidence of that, actually. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's happening, but we don't know that it is. There's a lot of evidence these things are coming out of the ocean, including videotape, of these objects coming out of the water at high speed, or even more amazing, descending at Mach 3 into the water. Then we have a huge submarine fleet, American, but also Chinese and Russian, uh, underwater with pretty sensitive measurement devices, sonar, etc. And they have recorded these objects doing hundreds of knots underwater at impossibly high speeds. So just like, let's just apply common sense for one second. If I take a 45 ACP, you know, a, a 45 caliber handgun and fire it at you underwater in, say, a swimming pool 50 feet away, you can catch the bullet because the resistance is so strong from the water that objects can't move that fast underwater. We know that. But they are, and they're moving without any visible means of propulsion. So no wake, no bubbles. Really? Yes. On, like, sonar systems? Yes, from the submarines. And this has come out. Wow. Like, some of this is in the New York Times. I'm not... That's crazy. It's not like you have to go on the dark web to find out. So, what, is there, like, aliens are living in the Earth's core or some shit? I have no idea. I'd only be speculating. But there, there, there is, I want to restate, videotape of these objects of unknown origin hitting the water and disappearing and then coming out of the water. We've interviewed a number of experts on the show, people familiar with footage in the possession of the U.S. military, who have said there is tape out there of unidentified flying objects descending from the sky and then disappearing into the ocean. Well, today, that video emerged. The Pentagon has just confirmed that the footage is real. You're seeing it now on your screen. It was taken by the Combat Information Center on board the USS Omaha on July 15, 2019, off the coast of San Diego. As far as we know, the UFO in question was never recovered. There was no material indicating a crash. More than that, we don't know. If you listen to this with the sound up, you can hear the guys who are monitoring this video in real time gasp when it seems to disappear beneath the wave. So this kind of takes the weather balloon off the table or some meteorological phenomenon off the table. I mean, clearly we're looking at something that is, as you just put it, being intelligently controlled and it's going underneath the ocean and then disappearing. I mean, you're, we're sure that this could not be a foreign nation. Hundreds of knots underwater. I mean, I think all of us can imagine objects moving at incredible speeds in the air, maybe even approaching, right? you know, the speed of light, potentially, but hundreds of knots underwater, I don't think most people can even digest that. And that's been recorded? I mean, some of this behavior challenges our understanding of physics, so I, I think this is going to, it's going to change a lot of perceptions. Just a few days ago, the Pentagon confirmed that a 2019 video of a UFO sighting is actually real. It was a UFO. The video shows a pyramid-shaped object flying over a U.S. Navy destroyer. This is the very first time the public has seen video from this incident. 
And by the way, there was just last week, I spoke to a member of Congress about this who was on a military base in the state of Florida, where they showed him images of four of these things that, like a, a Raptor pilot, some American fighter pilot took these images of these objects right next to his plane. But here's the most interesting thing. They, they got a thermal read on him. They measure heat. That's one of the ways that, you know, we get a heat imprint. Like if we have a, like a thermal optic, I can see the heat coming off your body. That's how we see things. Yeah, yeah. The thermal imaging of this showed the heat at the bottom of the object and not at the top. And as the commanding general said to this member of Congress, he's like, that doesn't make any sense because heat does what? It rises. So you don't ever see a thermal image of anything with the heat at the bottom. The heat's at the top. It's cool at the top, hot at the bottom. How does that work? If you, if I put a cigarette lighter under my hand, where's the hot part? Yeah, yeah. Right? So he's like, as a f- matter of physics, that can't happen. So to me, one of the most intriguing questions about all of this is, does physics actually describe the world around us? And no. If all of a sudden I'm saying like the laws of physics, like gravity, photosynthesis, like not all of that is real. Like it has limits and there are things that exist outside of it. That's when your brain starts to explode. I just wonder what would happen if something does come out, more evidence does come out, how the people would respond to we'll that. We'll ignore it. We'll ignore it. So my impression, I don't know this for a fact, but everyone I've ever talked to about it is like one of the reasons they're nervous is that this shows, and the Russians and Chinese feel the same way, apparently, it shows that our military does not control our airspace, which is like a a basic precept of a country, like, this is our country, we control our borders, we control our airspace and our waters, and we don't. So that's really scary, and it shows the military is not in control. So that's they don't want to admit that. And the second thing they're worried about is some kind of, like, mass freakout, where people are like, I can't aliens are here! But based on my limited experience i don't think they should worry because people are so high and so caught up in prince harry (laughs) that like i honestly think if an alien spacecraft landed in times square and started issuing orders people would be like wow that's a trip man (laughs) and then like the next day daily mail would be leading with prince harry yeah i do think that yeah so what what's your theory on aliens based on all the research you've done do you think they're already on earth i think that there's a huge amount of evidence in the archaeological record that these things have been around since the beginning of recorded history. The references to them. The star over Bethlehem may be one of them. I, I Here's what I really think. I think I don't know. And I think that in wise people understand the limits of their knowledge and of their perception. We don't know what these objects are. We don't know if physics is actually real. Probably not. Like We don't know anything. We don't know what happens when we die. Like, stop pretending. We don't know where the war in Ukraine is going. Stop pretending that we're God. We're not. And we can't, we don't know a lot. And I just wish our leaders would say that. I think it, I think they're coming from under the ocean. It seems the evidence suggests that. Or why not? What would your encounter look like if you met an alien? I'd be super respectful. And <laughs> according, I mean, based on my conversation with this Stanford medical professor, I would, I would conduct that interview at a distance. Mm-hmm because whatever is coming off these machines um, is very bad for the human body. You know, super, super, killed people, like a bunch of people. Yeah. By the way, last thing, how can something kill a U.S., an active duty U.S. serviceman or several of them? And like, that's not a story? Like, what is the, what is wrong with the media? Was there any reason as to why they died? Yeah, they were, they were. What was was the official reason? It was like an EMP. 
Mm. Oh, aneurysm, they had a stroke, but their brains were fried. And the Department of Defense was screwing the families because they refused to acknowledge that they were killed by these objects, whatever they are. And that, that was the whole point of the story. It's like, these families are like, no, 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 my son or husband is dead. Yeah, but I'm just like, what? why has the New York Times never written that story in 50 years? Like, I've spent my whole life in the media. My dad was in the media. Like, that is a big part of the revelation that's changed my life is the media are part of the control apparatus. Like, there's no... Yeah, I know, I know, because you're younger and smarter and you're like, yeah. Yeah. But what if you're me and you spent your whole life in that world? And to look around and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. What is one of your biggest regrets in your career? Oh, defending the Iraq war. That is it? Well, I've had a million regrets. Not being more skeptical, calling people names when I should have listened to what they were saying. Look, when you when someone makes a claim, there's only one question that's important at the very beginning, which is, is the claim true or not? For too long, I participated in the culture where I was like, anyone who thinks outside these pre-prescribed lanes is crazy. Is a conspiracy theorist. So here we have the nuclear connection again. This was around the first detonation in, in human history of a nuclear device. Subsequent to that, you've had UFO sightings at nuclear missile bases, around nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered submarines. There's a clearly some nuclear, I mean, I don't pretend to understand, but nuclear has some connection to these sightings, no? <laughs> you think? I mean, those are not weather balloons. Those are clearly no. autonomous aircraft of some kind that are, as you put it, swarming U.S. military craft. So These are there are two options. Under intelligent I, control. These are craft under intelligent and that, control, and they're flying with impunity, Tucker, within our airspace. This must have scared the crap out of the U.S. military. I mean, their job is to defend the country and themselves, and here these aircraft violate their airspace. Quickly, do you believe that they sincerely don't know? That doesn't mean the phenomenon has subsided. In fact, it seems to be accelerating, sightings the government cannot explain. The Daily Mail is reporting tonight exclusively that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is about to send a classified report to Congress in which the government details more than 150 cases of unexplained UFO encounters in just the past year. In all, the report looked into more than 300 total encounters, and of those, half could not be explained. So there's been a lot of speculation about this. There was a Wall Street Journal piece recently that suggested this is actually a, a, a PSYOP by the U.S. government designed to draw your attention away from the fact that these objects are, in fact, some advanced military hardware the U.S. government itself has and wants to keep secret. Like, I worked at CNN. I spent a season doing commentary and analysis for Good Morning America. <laughs> I lived in Washington from the age of 15. My dad worked for the federal government. Like, I am not an outsider. Like, yeah believing that fluoride is causing brain damage, whatever. Like, I've never believed in a conspiracy theory my entire life. I lived in Washington. And it was only in the past five years when all this evidence would, but I'm curious, all this evidence would emerge. And I'd be like, well, that doesn't, that's not true. It doesn't seem true to me. Like, I can, like, I don't know what the truth is, but I can tell when someone's lying. It's like my one gift. And I would see these people lying and I'd be like, why are they lying? Like, I know they're lying, but why? And so I really came to this, like, at the age of 50, like, that's, you're almost dead when you're 50. That's very late. We think the fact that there are objects floating around in our atmosphere and apparently outside it that are not of human origin, but are that it clearly intelligently controlled is a huge story. In fact, it's hard to think of a bigger story. And I know it's not about January 6th. 
But it's important, and it has extraordinary implications for all of us. Scientists have now detected mysterious radio signals coming from space. What does that mean exactly? We don't know. So the report all but says what is obvious to anyone who thinks about this, which is these are not from a foreign military. And maybe the lackadaisical approach or the disorganized approach on the part of the military to looking into this suggests that too. If, the, if we thought these were Chinese, you know, we'd be on it. And so we don't think they're Chinese. They're not Chinese and they're not Russian. So they're extraterrestrial. I mean, what's the other, I mean, let's just, let's just say it. I mean, what's the other explanation? There are a lot of these. This is not like, you know, some drunk guy in a rural road in northern New Hampshire saw something weird. I mean, this is the U.S. military regularly, very often recording these objects. Um, I thought Lou made a very solid point, and I'm embarrassed I hadn't thought of it before, which is this is, among other things, whatever these objects are, a potentially very grave threat to nation states. So where was the intelligence community in warning about this and learning more about it, where were they? They're sending these documents on to the Justice Department. A million new jobs in the second quarter, despite negative growth. Wait a second, how do you get a million new jobs with negative growth? That seems like magic. How is that possible? But no one in the media asked questions. Instead, they repeated the White House line which was the BLS report, the Bureau of Labor Statistics report showing a million new jobs proves we can't be in a recession. Two quarters declining GDP, recession. We're not making that up. You'll find it in every economics textbook ever written. Or look up the one you used in college. But the Biden administration could not admit that. If they admitted the U.S. was in a recession, they would lose the Senate. They would lose control of both chambers of the Congress. So they had to lie about it. But how do you lie about something that's so easily defined that everyone can see? Well, you just change the definition. And that's what they did. They came up with a new definition of recession. So don't look at GDP. That's the old way, the racist way of assessing the economy. Look at holistic factors, said the way. Let's look at the labor market, for example. The labor market. Well, then, in June, the Bureau of Labor Statistics gave them ammunition for their case. The Bureau of Labor Statistics issued a report that showed the labor market was strong. They determined that the U.S. economy had added more than a million jobs in the second quarter of this year, from March to June. A million jobs, despite negative growth. Wait a second. How do you get a million new jobs with negative growth? That seems like magic. How is that possible? But no one in the media asked questions. Instead, they repeated the White House line, which was the BLS report, the Bureau of Labor Statistics report showing a million new jobs, proves we can't be in a recession. They all said it, quote, the jobs report suggests the Biden economy is not in a recession, wrote the New York Times. And then, of course, there were other stories like that, too. So on the basis of that and other factors, they won. They now have control of the Senate. And now we get to learn the truth. A million new jobs, really? The Philadelphia Fed decided to check those numbers, and they found the U.S. economy did not add more than a million jobs in the second quarter of this year, and said the net addition of jobs was about 10,000. So that's less than 1% of the job growth the administration claimed. That's not a rounding error. That's not a minor math mistake. This is a country that supposedly sent a man to the moon. We can do math, right? This isn't like thinking you had 100 bucks in your pocket and finding out you had 85. This is like claiming you had a million dollars in your pocket and finding out you had 10,000. 
This is like claiming you were rich when you were actually bankrupt. This is a lie. And it's one thing to get the numbers wrong, but then to base future policies on numbers you know are wrong, what is that? At this point, Biden has the functional IQ of office furniture, but his instinctive viciousness remains intact. So Biden, the second he got into office, wasted no time at all in blaming Americans for a virus that China created, and then in using the pandemic to pit neighbors against one another. It was the cruelest and most divisive thing any president has ever done to his own country. Our patience is wearing thin, Americans. If you want to take an untested experimental mRNA shot from a company that has bought immunity from Congress against future lawsuits, you are a selfish Neanderthal. Worse, you're a killer. You're literally, literally killing your own neighbors. The only good news is you will soon die yourself because you deserve it. That's what Joe Biden said. The president said that to his own people. And it was, of course, a lie. Leaving aside its potentially terrifying side effects, the shot did not work as advertised. Sorry, it just didn't. It did not prevent people from dying, did not even prevent them from transmitting or getting COVID themselves. And that's why vaccinated people still wear masks. Everyone knows this, but Joe Biden has never admitted any of it. Why? What was so bad about ivermectin and monoclonal antibody therapy? We still don't know. The administration still won't tell us where the virus came from, though obviously they know the answer. But now is the time to find out. We need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to get the bottom of what we just lived through. And let's hope we get one very soon. The Democratic Party can't govern the country without emergencies. If the public is ever allowed to calm down long enough to think clearly, uncomfortable questions might emerge. If you're a normal person, it's a pretty weird experience watching Joe Biden's presidency get euthanized by his own party. On one hand, there's an undeniable thrill to it. You have to admit that. Biden is the most destructive president in American history. More things have broken under his watch than under any other president. Joe Biden deserves to be driven from office and disgraced. But for this, breaking federal classification rules, some of the stupidest and most dishonest laws Congress has ever passed, it's like arresting El Chapo for expired plates. It's missing the point. But it looks like that's what's going to happen. It seems like every day when a Biden's lawyer shows up with more sheaves of classified documents. The classified documents that Joe Biden, quote, stored in his garage and left at the Penn Center have been floating around for a full six years since Joe Biden left the vice president's office in January of 2017. No one has even attempted a convincing explanation. Instead, the media is pretending to argue that it's not a big deal in the first place that Joe Biden stored classified documents near his Corvette because he admitted doing it when he got caught. And if you admit you've committed a crime, the point of this, of course, is to disarm people who did not vote for Joe Biden. And that is why simultaneous with this, this effort to recategorize the guns in your closet as felonies, Democrats have been failing to prosecute gun crimes in our cities where most of the crime is. And if you're at all confused about whether the effort here is selective. If this is enforcement only at certain people, you'll notice the president never mentioned the apparent federal gun felony his own son committed when he lied on a federal background form when he bought a handgun. Didn't mention that. Justice Department has completely ignored it. Instead, Biden's fellow Democrats in the House of Representatives spent the day debating ways to disarm you, Americans who've committed no crime at all and want only to protect themselves and their families. Democrats plan to criminalize possession of what they're calling large capacity ammunition feeding devices. That is specifically any magazine that can hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Well, as it turns out, that is most magazines in the United States. 
Tens of millions of Americans right now have so-called high-capacity magazines in their homes. They're not militia members, they're not gun nuts, they are normal people. And the reason they have them is because most modern handguns and rifles use that type of magazine, the kind that Joe Biden is telling you is threatening and esoteric. And these same firearms, the ones in your house right now, will not accept the kind of diminished magazines Joe Biden is demanding you use. And that means, in effect, all of those guns will be banned. It is the one thing Joe Biden has done that cannot be undone. Our great-grandchildren are going to live with the consequences of this. But you never know it from watching most of the news. There's an effective media blackout on Joe Biden's immigration policies and on their downstream effects on America. There are too many strangers pouring in at once, and as a result, the country is becoming chaotic. So it wasn't until today that we knew Biden had been stashing state secrets in his Corvette. If you're looking for crimes that Joe Biden has committed, there is a very long list. Our country is being invaded. The world is on the brink of nuclear war. American cities have become slums. Our economy is in shambles. Even our airplanes no longer take off on time. It's a disaster, and Joe Biden and his staff have a hand in all of it. In a country with a functioning government, Joe Biden would have been impeached before the first million illegal aliens crossed over our southern border. But no one did anything to stop it. So now they're arriving at the rate of a quarter million a month. Permanent Washington does not want Joe Biden to run for president again. This is how they're sending that message. Even CNN has decided to become interested in Joe Biden's misdeeds two years into his presidency. They're doing segments on how classification laws protect this country from its mortal enemies like Russia. So you know for certain the order has gone out. Biden is done. So the Department of Justice knew on November 4th that Joe Biden had committed crimes. November 4th was four days before a pivotal midterm election. So naturally, the DOJ didn't issue a press release about it. Joe Biden is partly responsible. He helped introduce this corruption into our system. And in one of those weird twists of fate that was probably inevitable but still feels like actual justice, Joe Biden is about to suffer greatly for it. It's a mess, he said. Of course it is. The whole country is a mess because Joe Biden has ignored immigration laws passed by the Congress. That is a crime and it has killed huge numbers of Americans, hundreds of thousands dead. So what's notable as a political matter is that every one of these disasters, the fentanyl epidemic, the chaos and crime in our cities, the invasion underway through Texas, Arizona, and California, all of those deeply concern Americans. We're not guessing at that. Polls show it very clearly. By contrast, how many voters do you think are lying awake right now worrying that public officials might violate some obscure federal classification law? None. Not a single person. No one outside Washington cares or even understands the issue. And yet, it is classified documents, not our open borders, that the Justice Department is punishing Joe Biden for. Why is that? What's going on here? Well, it's simple. Washington is protecting itself. Joe Biden alone is responsible for this crime. He alone took home classified documents. He didn't have help in doing that. But allowing the country to be invaded, that's not something you can do by yourself. So if Biden were to be taken down for opening the southern border, a lot of other people would go with him. He had a lot of accomplices. Permanent Washington doesn't want that. And ultimately, and here's the point, permanent Washington is in charge. It's not the democracy you imagine. We're seeing that now. So if you want to understand, if you really want to understand how the American government actually works at the highest levels, and if you want to know why they don't teach history anymore, one thing you should know is that the most popular president in American history was...
Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Yet somehow, without a single vote being cast by a single American voter, Richard Nixon was kicked out of office and replaced by the only unelected president in American history. So we went from the most popular president to a president nobody voted for. Wait a minute, you may ask. Why didn't I know that? Wasn't Richard Nixon a criminal? Wasn't he despised by all decent people? (laughs) No, he wasn't. In fact, if any president could claim to be the people's choice, it was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was reelected in 1972 by the largest margin of the popular vote ever recorded before or since. Nixon got 17 million more votes than his opponent. Less than two years later, he was gone. He was forced to resign. And in his place, an obedient servant of the federal agencies called Gerald Ford took over the White House. How did that happen? Well, it's a long story, but here are the highlights, and they tell you a lot. Richard Nixon believed that elements in the federal bureaucracy were working to undermine the American system of government and had been doing that for a long time. He often said that. He was absolutely right. On June 23, 1972, Nixon met with the then CIA director, Richard Helms, at the White House. During the conversation, which thankfully was tape recorded, Nixon suggested he knew, quote, who shot John, meaning President John F. Kennedy. Nixon further implied that the CIA was directly involved in Kennedy's assassination, which we now know it was. Helms's telling response, total silence. But for Nixon, it didn't matter because it was already over. Four days before, on June 19th, the Washington Post had published the first of many stories about a break-in at the Watergate office building. Unbeknownst to Nixon and unreported by the Washington Post, four of the five burglars worked for the CIA. The first of many dishonest Watergate stories was written by a 29-year-old Metro reporter called Bob Woodward. Who exactly was Bob Woodward? Well, he wasn't a journalist. Bob Woodward had no background whatsoever in the news business. Instead, Bob Woodward came directly from the classified areas of the federal government. Shortly before Watergate, Woodward was a naval officer at the Pentagon. He had a top secret clearance. He worked regularly with the intel agencies. At times, Woodward was even detailed to the Nixon White House, where he interacted with Richard Nixon's top aides. Soon after leaving the Navy, for reasons that have never been clear, Woodward was hired by the most powerful news outlet in Washington and assigned the biggest story in the country. And just to make it crystal clear what was actually happening, Woodward's main source for his Watergate series was the deputy director of the FBI, Mark Felt. And Mark Felt ran, and we're not making this up, the FBI's COINTELPRO program, which was designed to secretly discredit political actors the federal agencies wanted to destroy, people like Richard Nixon. And at the same time, those same agencies were also working to take down Nixon's elected vice president, Spiro Agnew. In the fall of 1973, Agnew was indicted for tax evasion and forced to resign. His replacement was a colorless congressman from Grand Rapids called Gerald Ford. What was Ford's qualification for the job? Well, he had served on the Warren Commission, which absolved the CIA of responsibility for President Kennedy's murder. Nixon was strong-armed into accepting Gerald Ford by Democrats in Congress. Quote, we gave Nixon no choice but Ford, Speaker of the House Carl Albert later boasted. Eight months later, Gerald Ford of the Warren Commission was the president of the United States. See how that works? So those are the facts. Not speculation, all of that actually happened. None of it's secret, most of it actually is on Wikipedia. But no mainstream news organization has ever told that story. It's so obvious, yet it's intentionally ignored. And as a result, 
permanent Washington remains in charge of our political system. Unelected lifers in the federal agencies make the biggest decisions in American government and crush anyone who tries to rein them in. And in the process, our democracy becomes a joke. Now, you may have noticed that the very first person in the Trump administration the agencies went after was General Michael Flynn. Why Flynn? Because Mike Flynn was a career Army intel officer who ran the Defense Intelligence Agency. In other words, Mike Flynn knew exactly how the system worked. And as a result, he was capable of fighting back. Four days after Donald Trump's inauguration, the FBI lured Mike Flynn into a meeting without his lawyer, concocted a series of fake crimes, and forced him to resign. So that's how things actually work in Washington. Let's stop lying about it. Joe Biden, meanwhile, whooped like a hyena when the Justice Department destroyed Mike Flynn. So there is, we have to say, a certain perverse justice in watching something very similar happen to Joe Biden himself six years later. Joe Biden does not deserve our sympathy. He's being shafted, but don't weep for him. And yet the rest of us do deserve a better system, an actual democracy. When people nobody voted for run everything, you are not living in a free country. Even finance, which is symbiotic with the real economy, depends in the end on energy because you can't lend money to businesses if they no longer exist. And if energy prices go up high enough, they don't exist. So given how central, very obviously central, energy is to everything that matters in America, it's hard to believe that the Biden administration would intentionally make energy much more expensive. Because we know for a fact, having seen it repeatedly through history, that high energy prices will crush our economy faster even than the COVID lockdowns did. People will become poor. Some of them will die. That's not a guess, it will happen. So given all that, it's unimaginable that anyone but our enemies would want to raise our energy prices to the point where our economy collapses. And yet that is exactly what the Biden administration has decided to do. And to do it, they're using twin instruments of climate policy and their war against Russia. The effect, in a nation with the largest recoverable oil reserves on planet Earth, many Americans can no longer afford fossil fuels. And once again, this is not an accident. It's not a natural cycle we're going through. Politicians and policymakers are doing it to us on purpose. Months before the war in Ukraine began and somehow Vladimir Putin secretly seized control of gas prices in the United States, how did he do that? Before any of that happened, the magic happened. Sober people, a petroleum analysis firm called GasBuddy, decided to do a simple calculation. They wanted to put rising gas prices in context. Here's what they did. Math. They determined every year-over-year -year price change in gasoline prices in the United States going back to 2002, 20 years. And they found this. From November of 2020 to November of 2021, that would be roughly from Election Day to the end of Joe Biden's first year running the country, gas prices in the United States went up by more than 66%. That was the single highest year-over-year -year increase since 2002, which happens to be the year that government started tracking those data. Now, this happened before Russia invaded Ukraine. Why did it happen? Super simple. Joe Biden on the campaign trail told us he was like Superman. And then he proceeded to jump off the garage. He told us he was going to end fossil fuels. And because no one took him seriously because he's senile and wasn't actually going to win, no one followed up with, what are you, insane? How are you going to do that? And so he kept going. And then he became president somehow. And then he followed through on that promise. He canceled pipelines. He terminated oil and gas leases. He rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement without explaining why we should. And by the way, 
if the climate is such a crisis, an existential crisis, and China and India are using more fossil fuels than they did 10 years ago and nobody says anything about it, maybe they're not really sincere about this global warming thing. And then on top of all of that, Joe Biden pumped trillions more dollars into the U.S. economy, thereby devaluing the U.S. dollar, making everything, including energy, more expensive. You know what happened. That's all true. And it was done on purpose. It was done to change our energy supply from what is cheap, efficient, and the source of all of our wealth to something that Biden and his donors control, the green economy that will make us poor. And that is, in fact, causing famine around the world right now. So that's what happened. As a political matter, since this is still sort of a democracy, it happened way too fast and scared the hell out of people. And polls showed that Democrats and Republicans, no matter who they voted for, were worried above all about rising energy prices because it hurt them directly every single day. But it's so dumb. It's so provably untrue that no one believed it. Even people who wanted to believe it, people who voted for Biden, who want windmills and solar farms, they couldn't believe it because it's absurd. And in an election year, that's a huge problem. So the administration had to do something. That's why in late March, in an act of desperation, Biden did maybe the worst thing that he has done since becoming president. And that's saying a lot. He started to sell off one of this country's most important natural resources, one of our most valuable assets. It's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR. It's controlled by the Department of Energy. So what Biden could have done is produce more oil domestically, but that would have been too easy and too good for the United States and its long-term interests. Instead, he decided to do something so crazy and so dangerous that only someone who was intentionally trying to harm the United States would even consider it. According to customs data, China spent $19 billion on Russia oil, gas, and coal earlier this year. That's double the amount they spent over the same period last year. India spent $5 billion on Russian oil. That's up five times from what they spent a year ago. So we just made Russia a ton of money. That's why the ruble is so strong as the dollar is getting weaker. Russia has raked in $13 billion in additional revenue from India and China compared to the same period last year. Following all this? This is how we're punishing our enemies? By selling off our own most valuable assets and watching Russia and India and, my God, China get richer? Now, on top of all of that cheap Russian oil, China is getting petroleum from our emergency petroleum reserves. The crude, by the way, in the SPR is the best crude that we have. It's called medium sour crude. It's the easiest to process. And we're giving it away to a government whose whole goal is to displace us on the global stage and crush us. The Chinese will be cruel masters when they run the world. They're not like us at all. By the way, that country, China, also happens to be a longtime business partner of the Biden family. In the end, this is all we know. UFOs are real. They've been well documented by our government for many years, and even more precisely so since the development of infrared camera technology. They are not piloted by human beings. They exhibit behavior that science cannot account for. They operate both in the air and beneath the ocean. They appear to be attracted to nuclear facilities. So far, they have not attacked us. And now we're going to do a deep dive into child trafficking. This is, like I said, it's a difficult subject, but we really need to be aware of, of what it is and what people are trying to do to make it, uh, to make it known. All right. So here we go. It's only 18 minutes, and um, we need to know it.
privilege to be here with you both to talk about Sound of Freedom. And we know that both of you are very frequently depicted in movies that affect change. They're they're not just entertainment. Can you tell us, Jim, what what do you want this movie? How do you want it to affect our culture? All right. Let's start with my own children. I adopted three. My wife and I adopted three children from China. And I became very well aware of the dangers that children go through globally, even through the orphanage program. Uh, next step is this man um, called me up, said, do you want to do something that really can light things up? Now I'm going to go back to the Passion of the Christ. I saw what that did to this world globally. And it was a very difficult film. And uh, um, obviously, we took a lot of fluff putting that thing out. Um, and uh, But it, it did a great amount of good. And it went against the, the media's narrative. This one is also part of that. Because it's going against what's going down at the border. I said this over and over again. Uh, if you don't have a border, a south border, you don't have a country. You, by the rules sovereign country you have to have borders we don't have a silent border um it it points a, a big light on grooming a lot of that going on in the united states right now laws that are just I, abortion killing a baby 27 days after they're born all of this is a war on ch our children and the public ain't happening i didn't uh, don't want this happening a mother um and so um, all of that when we came to Washington I, many of them asked me well, what can I do for you when, once we were done talking I said oh, we want to help you we want to give you a weapon and this is what it is and uh, so now we have guys like uh, Elon Musk that are coming in and helping us out um, Ivanka Trump just tweeted the other day and this is growing it's a big big movement and it is it really is um, fighting for the survival of our country, our republic, especially for our children, that God's children are no longer for sale. And not every project is successful when it takes this, um, when it comes from this standpoint that you're coming from, that um, God has a say in what's going on and that that matters. Why do you think that this project has been successful already? Mother Teresa said, we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful to God. That is our success. Now, if you're faithful to God and success comes, it's a blessing. Let's use that success to change the world. But if it doesn't come, if it, if it doesn't come, don't compromise your faith. Don't compromise your values. Don't compromise your integrity in order to obtain what the word then success is because that success doesn't come from God. So, um, Almost 20 years ago, I made a promise to God that I would never use my talents again to do anything that would offend my faith, my family, or my Latino culture. And after I made that promise, I was in Los Angeles, California. I ended up not working for four years because every single thing that I got offered was exactly about, you know, was exactly about the things that I promised I would never do. So I had to turn them down. And that's why I was led to open a production company because as an actor, I didn't have the power to control the message. And I was tired of waiting for a role that would portray a man as a real man and that's why I became a producer. My first movie that I produced with Alejandro Monteverde and Leo Severino was a movie called Bella. Uh, the best part of Bella is 
not that it won the Toronto Film Festival. The best part of Bella is all the emails and letters and phone calls that I receive every day till today of women who were pregnant, scheduled to have an abortion. And after seeing the movie Bella, by the grace of God, they decided to get their babies. They changed their minds. Mm. Thousands of babies are being saved. Thousands that we know of. God knows how many more. I hope millions. So when you are part of a film that has a potential not only to entertain, but to save human lives, that's success for me. So when I met Tim Ballard eight years ago in Los Angeles, California, meeting a real hero in real life inspired you. I was very inspired. But at the same time, at the same time when I learned what he was doing with his friends, traveling around the world undercover, rescuing children who were kidnapped for sexual exploitation, he broke my heart when he explained to me with details what these children are going through, the pain of these children. I couldn't look the other way around. And I, and I said to him, I asked many questions. You know, first of all, uh, when he told me that this is a global problem, especially U.S. and Mexico, U.S. is the number one consumer of child sex in the world. Mexico, number one provider. 60% of, the, of child pornography that is consumed in the world is produced in Mexico. Then I realized, one second, I was born in Mexico. I'm, I love my country. I'm Mexican. I love USA. I love America because this country, United States, opened the door to my dreams. This nation has been such an amazing blessing in my life. It's like having a father and mother. You love them both. So how can we work together, American, Mexicans, working together to save the children through a bilateral effort, through art? Art, Plato said, if I have to choose between art and politics to govern a nation, he said, I will choose art because art has the power to touch people's hearts and change their minds. Therefore, therefore, how they think, how they live, how they behave, well, I don't have to choose. We can combine art, politics, ethics to serve the nations. That's what this film is. So when I ask him, if this is a big problem, especially U.S. and Mexico, U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. You have the money. You have the technology, the intelligence, the army, the police, everything. How come we don't finish this problem? And he said, because it's not a priority. How can we turn this into priority then? We need a movement. We need a movement. And that's when I realized, you know what? We have a weapon of mass instruction and inspiration. Movies. Movies move people. Media influence how people think. Let's make a movie. I put pause in everything that I was doing so I can dedicate my entire life thinking like, what if this is my son? What if my son is missing? What would I do? I will put pause in everything that I'm doing. I will hope that the world will pause. The entire world will pause in everything they're doing so they can help me to find my child. So that's my motivation. Let's make this movie a movement. And it's been eight years of my life working in this project for two hours of your life, of your time, which is what this movie lasts. And, and, and the best part is when I asked Tim Ballard, who do you want to play you? The script is ready. And he said, Jesus Christ. Hermano, this is too expensive. I don't think Jesus will come here to play, you know, to, to be an actor. No, no, no. The guy who plays Jesus Christ, Gene Caviezel in The Passion of Christ. Okay, I think, I said we can afford him. <laughs> but you know what? For him was not even about the money. When we met with him and he read the script and he, when he learned what we were trying to do, he said, guys, this is more personal to me than for you. This is, this is my life. I will dedicate my life to end child trafficking. I mean, what's next? And he's been in since day one. And I know he will be like that until the end of his life. This guy's a warrior. He's a hero for millions of people. 
and and he's leading by example because a lot of people told us this is too dangerous. James is too dangerous. Eduardo is too dangerous. Really? It's more dangerous not to do it in the long term because when God asks you to do something, you cannot look the other way around. And we're, we're just answering this calling and we're happy to be here with you. In Washington, this city is so important because if you touch this city, you touch the world. Because the most important decisions that are made in the city affect the destiny, not only of America, of the world, if not forever, for many years. And we here in Washington are very aware of the fact that we don't have this art that you're talking about that can change the culture so much. And so when we see projects like this, we recognize how valuable and impactful these projects can be. Uh, I'm curious, what has been the response from Hollywood or the, the movie world to this project um, you know, we, we've heard so many stories about Hollywood abuse of children and child actors and things like that. Do you, have you found a strong reception out West? This is really directed to, to him. He's our producer. I wanted to say one thing that he did. Uh, <laughs> when you have something like uh, a Passion of the Christ, where this is the best film I've been done since the Passion of the Christ, you're going to have hell come at you and you know if, if if right is right that you do the right thing come hell or high water that's what you got to do and that's what faith really is you know um and um this was no different we're down there and we're filming and he um gets in a, a we're well we're 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 lost our money and um, we would have been shut down. And he basically put this film on his back. And not only that, got us out of that trouble. The, when the movie came out, it was like, okay, now it all begins. So once we got out, we had an amazing film. They edited it. Then you have these guys watching this. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be, okay, this might be the right. Listen, if this was Schindler's List, that was 50 years later. Okay, this is Schindler's List now, and this time we made it during this time now. And the individuals that are not going to carry their cross are going to look at this and go, okay, that's yours, we don't want anything to do with it. And he had to bear that burden, and he's had to hold it for quite a long time, or we would never got this out. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, when we finished it eight years, I mean, it's been eight years of work, but we finished the movie five years ago. And... um and I thought, finally, okay, now this movie's going to see the light. It's going to raise awareness because my number one goal is to raise awareness. Alejandro Monteverde, who is a genius director, he's the writer and the director of this film. I mean, first of all, I'm so honored to be surrounded by amazing Michelangelos, like this guy, incredible actor, but more important, the heart. Alejandro Monteverde, um, Tim Ballard, it's amazing, but our number one goal is to raise awareness because a lot of people, they don't even know that this problem exists. How can you become a solution um, if you don't even know that this problem exists in the first place, right? So we need to raise awareness. Millions of people, they need to see this film. So I thought it's going to be very simple and easy. Let's go to Netflix so they can, we can reach the entire world. This is not for us. And they passed. Well, okay, I'm a sir. This is not for us. And... Amazon and Netflix. Yeah. Netflix. Yes. And many more for three years. 
this is not for us. That's the well, word. All right. I mean, I can say one thing. I showed it in a Vegas, at, and there was uh, five screenings, about 1,500 um, people that saw it. During the five screenings, each screening, there was um, a talking going on. And I was like watching the audience going, why? The second time it happened. Again, third time talking in this one particular spot. And I'm thinking, what? Did we do something wrong or something? But so then one more time it happened. At the end, I was asking about the movie and I asked him about that one particular part where everybody's talking and they all cried out Epstein Island. And I went, oh, okay. Now I understand what we're up against. Hmm. Epstein Island isn't the only sex island out there. And Tim Ballard takes down one of the film. Why this many people involved in this crime in every sector, political sector, worldwide here, Mexico, worldwide. This is a global product. Global product. It's elite product. And Hollywood too. Uh, I'm not saying everyone, you know, because he lives in LA. I used to live in LA. There's a lot of great people there who are fighting, but the guys who are like at very top. Are there ones we don't know about? Well, I'm hundreds of saying. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not an agent, um, but there are. With the power of this film, what? Why they're scared of this film is because. Um, look at the passion of the Christ. We. It, this is amazing. It was a pushed by the people, and at one point, two different individuals went and watched the movie. The, both of these guys got away with murder, and they turned themselves in. After that movie, yeah. Now, this movie has a power because it goes into your heart, and it asks you a question. You know, when when this is all done, what do you get? And what are you gonna What are you gonna do? What you're gonna have to meet God at some point. And I believe it's going to move a lot of whistleblowers mm -hmm. to come forward, but not one, in the hundreds, maybe thousands of them worldwide start coming forward and telling the truth of what's really going on. And that will bring an end to this whole thing. Yeah. And and this is very important because we are against Goliath. Disney is coming the same day. Uh, the week of July 4th, Independence Day. Freedom, right? Yeah, we should celebrate freedom. In one hand, but in the other hand, there's a lot of kids, a lot of children that won't be able to celebrate freedom. We need to do something to bring freedom back to them. So we have this film that today we had a we received a great news. Now we're in 2,400 theaters. Our goal is more than 3,000 theaters. We started in 1,000. So there is something, some momentum going on right now. And um, so we're like the little, the little David, the underdog against Goliath, only with the help of the people. Yes. If you will become one David, we yeah. know the end of the story. We know what happened to Goliath. It's up to you. It's up to the audience, up to the people. Right now, they are... They, they're answering amazing. It's, I mean, the ticket sales are growing and growing and growing, and we're out selling by twenty five percent. I mean, we're not, we're nothing, but the people are with us, and we're out selling Indiana Jones right now by twenty five percent. It's extraordinary, you know, and and we're now at, starting to add screens, but it's really important that people go buy the tickets now because if they do, like the passion, mm -hmm. they started adding several thousand glitters, right? And, we're, and, we're, and so the point is, is July 4th, 4th of July, can we give those children back their freedom on our Independence Day? We have a darkness around us right now. We could lose our republic. 
are we going to let our children go? And that's a question, and people have to answer. And I think they're 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 onto this. And um, the way things are going to be done now, uh, it's going to be changed from this point on. There's going to be a new direction in this country. Yeah, people aren't buying the media like they used to because they they. You know the ins- the stuff that happened on butter um, Hunter Biden laptop. Mm-hmm. Okay, two years you told us not true. Okay, I believe you. You're the media, you know. But then it's true. And then uh, for seven years we learned that uh, uh, Donald Trump is a Russian spy. Well, that's wrong. Thank you, media, for telling us that. But then now Durham report drops. He's not a Russian spy. Okay, that that's eighty percent in the last seven years that you told us is all false. So the public is going no. You don't have the power you used to. And it's the same thing with me as an actor. You know, a lot of movie stars, Joseph Goebbels back in the day, you know, people put their hand up to the swastika in order to work. I got to work. I love the sound of music. You know why? Because the Von Trapp father had those children. He's looking at his friends and they're all willing to take a break today at McDonald's on the third right camp. It was a matter of it's going to happen as long as it happened to you. And he goes off on that. His friend Max. Sometimes I don't even know you. And he's looking at his kids, and he realizes, what is all of this power worth anyway? If I go and work for Satan, and he packs up and takes his family and leaves. And extraordinary thing of faith. We need more people like this. And we we met a lot of them today. Oh, oh yeah, they're awesome. And look what is happening in the border right now. Where is Joe Biden? Why? How come these guys are not in the border? How come the government of Mexico, how come Lopez Obrador is not in the border trying to save the children? They don't care or they're involved. Both are wrong. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we're so grateful to both of you for sharing this story and for coming to speak with us. Thank you so much. God bless. God bless you. Thank you. As you may have uh, garnered from some of the podcasts I've already done, I look at a lot, a lot of videos. I listen to a lot of podcasters. But my, my probably one of my, definitely one of my favorites is Ani Avedisian. She's the mad shaman. She is a trained shaman. Her history is impressive. She's done work that most people wouldn't even imagine was being done like working for British intelligence and as a shaman so she brings into the picture an amazing amount of metaphysical knowledge but she is the most patriotic patriot that I know and she just received her American citizenship Oh, gee, I don't know. It was maybe six weeks ago, maybe not even that. I'll get lost in time. But I'm letting Ani, well, let me put it this way. I'm taking from Ani's last show, and she does one every Wednesday, every other Wednesday. I'm taking from that uh, a segment, a couple of segments. One where she's advertising metaphysical um, (laughs) martini, the show, and her website com, where she has all sorts of presentations that are open for you to participate in and it's something that you just if you want to really round it out 
and exciting and funny. I mean, she's, she's one of the few people that makes me actually belly laugh. So I'm giving you some of her contact information in this and um, just getting a fit flavor of the show. I've, I've taken clips of it so you can feel like what the show is about. It's just a lot of fun. So if you haven't heard her, here's a, here's a sampling. But like I say, she's in the archives. She's got her own podcast. You can find out where what that address is. And just enjoy her. All right? So here we go. Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. I'm Ani Avedisian. We are going to go along and sing a little song now because it's my 99th podcast. Yes, my darlings, it is 99 times that you and I, we have shared a martini cocktail together. And it reminds me of a little song that goes, 99 bottles of beer on the wall, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. And if one of those bottles should accidentally fall, it's probably because one of the martini heads decided to drink it. Welcome to the show, everyone. As always, three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good, hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello on this, our 99th Metaphysical Martini podcast with Cosmic Reality Radio. Woohoo! Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's show, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, Hunter seems to be cooperating... But federal peeps are still investigating. RFK has put his hat in the ring for some hey, hey, hey. Whistles are being blown all over town. How close are we to a total grid shutdown? We are going to need Advil as we run out of red pills. Insane, profane, the media lies yet again. Don't eat the geoengineered grain, bizarro little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can be mustered on any given day. And looking back on all of the 99 shows or 98 shows, I have to say, <clears throat> we are really successful. I will admit to that. But we are honor bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love the odd shot now and then. Yes, we do. We do. If this is your first martini podcast, a warm welcome to you. But be advised that this show is not politically correct because we do not wish to erode the intellect. Martini heads, we value common sense, common courtesy and common decency. Three things we feel are sorely lacking in today's cabal controlled world. On this show, we like to think that we think for ourselves. You know, Martini Heads, we believe in cosmic alignment and we believe in the development of our God-given intuition. Now, we're not religious, but it's cool if you are. We are more spirit-centered and you could say that metaphysical Martini is where the Holy Spirit meets top-notch distilled spirits. 
Our love for our creator is without limit, but not so our consumption for the other spirits. Moderation in all things, my darlings. The last thing we want in an insane world such as this is a drinking problem. So, you know, put a lid on it out there. Take it easy. We would love to see a return to respectful debate and civil conversation in this country. But alas, with so many genuinely brainwashed humans strutting about, parroting the lamestream mainstream, it may be a while before that happens. You cannot debate with someone who has made up their mind never to change their point of view because it matches their social conditioning. It's like buying art that matches your sofa. It just doesn't work. It makes you comfortable, but it's a silly thing to do. You can, of course, debate with people who, after much deliberation, having considered all sides of the equation, have come to the conclusion that they believe to be correct. You see, there's a difference there. The difference is the choice between fear-based ego pettiness and a genuine desire to expand consciousness. Let me take a moment to thank the people who made the intergalactic distribution of this show possible. Who are they, Arnie? I'll tell you who they are. Mystical wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. Do they serve chips and salsa? No, they do not. But their selection of crystals is spicy and hot. Do they serve cocktails with vodka and gin? No, and I say it with a grin, because they have so much shungite, I don't know where to begin. Are you shopping for yourself, or is it a gift? They have items that will take you beyond the dimensional rift. Mystical wares in Mount Vernon, Washington. A plethora of unspoken delight. They do metaphysics, and they do it right. Mysticalwares.com. Online or on location, you'll be sure to give them a standing ovation. And lovely people they are, too. Very pleasant to work with. This is from Russell. Russell says, It seems someone has pushed the disclosure button. Yes, Russell, finally it has been pushed. And then he writes, This is really clever. Um, there's a song, um, is it Rogers and Hammerstein? It goes, uh, June is busting out all over. Um, I think that's how it goes. And he's written, Truth is busting out all over, all over the media and the hill. Pedos busting out of bushes and the cartel drug lord pushes every dirty deal that squeals inside the hill. <laughs> oh, bravo, Russell. That is very clever, my friend. Good job with that. And he continues, and yet, Arnie, the diehards refuse to acknowledge it. Hunter got a slap on the wrist. The CDC murderers are walking instead of hanging, and somehow people think the fake Biden puppet is doing a good job. WTF. Oh, brother, I feel your pain. <laughs> but until lamestream mainstream falls, they will continue to think that. So, um, you know, because they don't look anywhere else for information. And, and this is what I mean by voluntary brainwashing. Russell, let it go. Deep breath. Oh, oh, let it go, man. Let it go. Free will. You know, there's free will. Not everyone has the stomach for the truth. And let's be honest. 
take the average citizen too busy to work, I mean, too busy with work, uh, you know, and then there's family and paying bills and taxes and, you know, um, they're on this hamster wheel, but somehow they still believe they're living the dream, you know, and they come home, they do what needs to be done. And by the time they watch the news, their brains are winding down and they are no longer alert. They don't want to think too much. And now people like you and I come along and we tell them about the mind blowing levels of corruption in the government, that the USA is a corporation, not a country, that deep state ideology has tainted every aspect of our lives, that the elected, not elected administrators have been bought and paid for years ago and are therefore easily blackmailed. And wait, there's more adrenochrome. Where does that come from? Would you like to know the dark and horrible secrets associated with the production of adrenochrome? And then the cult of pedophilia and money laundering and capturing young girls to use as broodmares and sexploitation, deep underground tunnels, reptilians and Lucifer. And it's all true that people cannot go from white picket fence to something so horrible, so intense overnight. Their minds will just reject it. It's too much. And it's too much. It shouldn't be. But it's too much because we've gone from a nation of fearless farmers to a nation of feeble minded automatons. Patience, my friend, but don't stop spreading the word. Don't stop telling the truth. Patience builds the dreams of man. With each new day, do what you can. It has been thus since time began. Align with God and yes, trust the plan. Well, my darlings, I want to thank everybody who wrote in. Martini heads, that's why we started this show, to see what's on the minds of you, the people. Um, I really appreciate hearing from you. I would be so very lonely if I just did this show on my own and no one listened to me. So I love you all. But I think after all those problems, we deserve a little silly poem. Um, I think we do. So let's go for it. So I wrote this this morning after my third Turkish coffee. Um, and because I was uh, preparing um, a lesson on civics for someone. And this one is titled Bites from the Bill of Rights. OK. And I'm going to dedicate this to my producer, Nancy, who's just awesome and has a birthday coming up this weekend. And she is a true patriot. So this is for you, my darling. Bites from the Bill of Rights. As long as I don't poop on your head like a pigeon, I have freedom of press, speech and religion. As long as I use them for righteous defense, don't touch my guns or things will get tense. Put the soldiers in barracks and not in my house, for I might mistake them for grouse or a mouse. If you don't have a warrant, please turn around. Just leave quietly. Don't make a sound. If you indict me, try to take me down. I'll plead the fifth and you'll wear a frown. I know my rights on juries and trials. Number six says those rights cannot be defiled. I'm not bothered with seven. 
I don't have 20 bucks. Besides, juries today are just human potlucks. I respect the eighth, but define what's excessive. A judge may be fair, or a judge might be aggressive. As I read the ninth, it defaults to we the people. But oh, what a mess in the hands of the legal. A limited government gives power to each state. Number 10 gets my vote, but it makes the globalists irate. The Constitution is a work of art written with surprisingly little ambiguity. But in the hands of lawyers and judges, it will be toyed with in perpetuity. To which I say, God bless America, and anyone messing with the star spangled better be ready to be arrested, tried and dangled, even if we the people have to do it ourselves. I stand ready. Sometimes I sit, but I am ready even when sitting. The highlight of this incarnation will be to see the restoration of the American Republic. Step by step, my fellow patriots, day by day, we work and pray because we know we will see a better day. Well, my darlings, what a treat it has been to be with you. It's not over yet. We are winding down, but it's not over yet. I want to quickly remind you to visit my website, oniavidician.com, to see what I'm up to. And if you want to have a heads up of all my little specials and strange little marketing things that I do, uh, sign up for my newsletter, Monthly Messages. It's only out once a month on the first Monday of each month. And it's, you know, short and sweet and like me, full of buttery goodness. Um, what else is on there? Yes, all my classes and it's it just go to it. That's where I go if I want to see what I'm doing. I think I should actually finish my drink right now. So hold on. Don't go away. Mm. 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 That was a good gulp. And I have finished my drink. <laughs> and that always means the end. Now, darlings, I hope you enjoyed listening in. Because if you didn't, you would have been very bored for the last hour, wouldn't you? But I hope you did enjoy it because I love doing this. I have a blast. It is my pleasure my absolute pleasure to meet with you every other Wednesday and share both my bullshit and my brilliance with you. Now, my darlings, we do have a great many people recently who have fallen prey to substance abuse and alcoholism. Please don't use alcohol to get away from your problems and get into a different space. Learn to meditate and then you can have the odd drink now and then and really enjoy it. Because remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie, mad as the day is long, Abadician. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are so grateful. Until we meet again. America no longer needs a silent majority. Get out there and make the restoration of the Republic your priority. But above all, my darlings, love one another and let the spirit inhabit the human. You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.